0: You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Find the show on Twitter at Talk of Fame Net. Here are your hosts Rick Goslin, Ron Borges, and Clark Judd.
1: Well, if you hear that sound. <laughs> Maybe you guys call it Thanksgiving, but around here, we call it cut-down time. Yeah, cut-down time. With the Pro Football Hall of Fame this week, cutting its preliminary list of 108 modern-era candidates for the class of 2018. By over about three quarters to what it is today, a group of semifinalists. And Gooseman, uh, predictable names on that ballot, including first-year candidate Ray Lewis. He was, uh, I think, the only slam dunk next year's class. But I look at this group. And I think um, when we get down to it, and I mean the 15 finalists, which will be announced next month, we could have some real strong defensive choices for the class of 2018, including Ty Law, Brian Dawkins, both top ten picks a year ago. Uh, not to mention John Lynch, who I think was a top ten choice the past two years.
2: Yeah, Clark, that's one of the problems I annually have with this ballot. The ten players don't make it one year are almost automatically grandfathered into the next class of candidates. I'm of the belief that not enough quality candidates are cycled through the room. When you bring back a Lynn Swan for 14 consecutive years until he makes it, or Art Monk eight consecutive times, or Harry Carson seven consecutive times, that's 27 slots we could have used to discuss other just-as-worthy candidates. Too many qualified candidates slide through the cracks without ever being discussed, and that's a flaw in this process. Essentially, once you make the finals, you remain a finalist until you're voted in, however long that takes.
1: Well, Gooseman, uh, since you're talking about the process, I mean, some of our listeners, I think most of our listeners probably don't understand it. Tell them how we go from 108 to ultimately 15 and then down to five modern era candidates.
2: Okay, we get a preliminary list in the summer. Uh, And there was 108 in the names on on the list this year. And then we reduced the class of candidates to 25 semifinalists in a September vote. Then we vote that 25 down to the 15 finalists in an October vote. Now, only those 15 finalists plus the three senior and uh, contributor candidates are discussed and voted upon in February when we determine the class of 2018.
1: Well, Mel Gray isn't a modern era candidate, but he should be. He should be a Hall of Fame candidate, and he's with us today. As well as the peripatetic, I said peripatetic, Ron Borges. Yes, Ron is back with us from Mexico, though. You and I are going to be running in and out of the studio because, well, yeah, you guessed it. We're in the kitchen trying to make something, anything that's going to bring Jerry Jones and Roger Goodell together.
2: Is that possible, Goose? Not in the near future. Probably (laughs) not in my lifetime.
1: Okay. Well, it's a Thanksgiving Day theme show, and we'll include our pardons, favorite Thanksgiving Day games, and Thanksgiving Day parade with today's star quarterbacks. That's all coming up next two hours. Of the Talk of Fame Network salutes Thanksgiving week.
0: You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SD Nation Radio. Every time
1: it this year, the President of the United States. Probably no pardons at Turkey, sparing it from Thanksgiving dinner or maybe the wrath of Jerry Jones Goose, whichever comes first. And because we're all about traditions on the Talk of Fame Network, um, we're going to get in line and issue our own pardons. And, yes, these may include some NFL turkeys, too. No, no turkey holes. We're going to leave that to John Gruden, but just turkey. So, Goose because Ron is still in the kitchen with what—a pumpkin pie, cranberry relish, chorizo. I don't know what he's up to, but uh, it's going to be up to you and I to spare these poor souls. So, Goose, you're first. Where are you going with your pardon?
2: Okay, I'm going to pardon Gus Bradley, who was fired by the Jacksonville Jaguars last offseason after losing 48 of his 62 games as head coach. But Bradley was hired in 2013 to fix the defense, and he left behind the structure and nucleus of a unit That has allowed the fewest points in the league and the third fewest yards. The Jaguars also ranked first in sacks, second in takeaways. He plugged in seven of those starters into place, and that defense has carried the Jaguars to first place in the AFC South this season. So I'll give Gus the pardon the Jaguars wouldn't give him last January. Ooh,
1: I like it. He's doing a pretty good job in L.A., too, with the Chargers. Yes, he is. Um, Well, I'm going to pardon Cleveland coach Hugh Jackson. Uh, I I know he wins goose about his... Office that snows in San Diego, speaking of the Chargers, but uh look at look at what or who he has to work with. I mean it's a front office that passes up Carson Wentz, Jerry Goff, Deshaun Watson, for what? Deshaun Kaiser? Gooseman, uh that's how you get yourself fired and, and who's gonna be. Uh, he'll be a sacrificial lamb of a front office that to me too often looks like it's run by Sergeant Schultz of TV's Hogan's Heroes. Remember that? Yeah hear nothing, I see nothing, I know nothing. Anyway, if you're a Cleveland fan, that was terrible. If you're a Cleveland fan, Goose, where is there room for hope? (laughs) Answer, spring training. It's going to start in March. pitchers and catchers is going to be in February.
2: Okay, my next pardon goes out to Baltimore wide receivers Jeremy Macklin and Mike Wallace for the pathetic showing by the Ravens (laughs) passing game this season. Baltimore has the worst passing offense in the NFL, and the two starting receivers have fewer catches between them than Antonio Brown of the Steelers. But this one is on quarterback Joe Flacco, who has been in a season-long funk with only eight touchdown passes in nine games. He's offset that with 10 interceptions and has yet to throw for 275 yards in a single game. He's, in fact, been under 200 yards in four of those games. This does not look like a $100 million quarterback, which he is. So I'm going to pardon Baltimore's wide receivers. This problem is bigger than them.
1: Say it ain't so, Joe. Say it ain't so, Goose. God. Well, okay. Um, I'm going down that Hugh Jackson rabbit hole again, Goose. I'm going to pardon another head coach. The Colts, Chuck Pagano. Um, He's been a dead man walking the entire season. In fact, last year we were talking about him. Is he going to be back? He's not going to be back. Well, he is back uh, but he's not back for long, and that can happen when Andrew Luck sits out your season and Jacoby Brissett is your starting quarterback and your uh, pinata du jour. But let's get some of this straight. I mean, the culprit here is not Jacoby Brissett. No, nope. it's – and stop, we've heard this before – a front office that hears nothing, sees nothing, knows nothing. I mean, it, it failed to protect Andrew Luck with an offensive line, and, and now Andrew Luck has failed to protect Chuck Pagano. He's over in Europe, Chuck, he's going down the chute in Indianapolis. But he'll join you, Jackson – the unemployment line, but Goose, uh, let's tell like it is. It wasn't his fault. I mean, this started back when Ryan Grigson was the GM, and he failed to get Andrew Luck a 10-year protection plan by drafting quality offensive linemen.
2: Well, I'm going to stay at the quarterback position, and I'm going to pardon Eli Manning. Oh! The Giants failed to make the playoffs last season because they couldn't block and they couldn't run. So what did the Giants do this season? They refuse to make any upgrades either on their offensive line or in the backfield, dealing their quarterback that same losing hand. He has no time to throw and no running game to slow down that pass rush. It's easy to blame Eli for all that ails the Giants. Mm -hmm. He's the quarterback, the guy who won two Super Bowl rings for him. But back then, he had a supporting cast. Not so this season or last. So, Clark, what's the saying? Those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat. It. <laughs>
1: That's right. The That's Giants right. didn't
2: learn from history in 2016, and now Eli Manning is paying for it. So he gets
1: wow. Yes, yeah, no pardon for Jerry Reese, huh? Nope. No. No, no. Um, okay, well, that should do it for our Thanksgiving pardons. Lucky guys, too. They could be Ben McAdoo, speaking of the Giants, tortured for the rest of the season, but they're not. Nope, not now. They're pardoned. Okay, Goose, another Thanksgiving tradition? You well know, growing up in Detroit, Thanksgiving Day football game. I loved him as a kid. I bet you did too. Uh, and I still like him, except well, except it's now just one more Thursday game. Only this time there are six teams. They have to operate on a short week and goose. Uh, I don't care how you slice the turkey. Uh, I think that's cruel and unusual punishment. Those two games in five days. uh, tough. I mean, you know what we talked about last week—that's tough.
2: Well, it's like that every week of the season. So yeah cut out the games in that $550 million payday from the networks, and if you break it down per player, that's 138000 apiece. So ask each player if he's willing to give back 138000 to have their Thursday nights off. That would solve the problem.
1: We give that up each week to take a week off, don't we? <laughs> yes, sir. That's $138. Hey, uh, you know one thing, Goose? I think I brought this up to you before, but I would think the league would schedule buys for these teams the week before. You know, so they don't have to go through another round of Thursday games. But I, I guess that makes too much sense. I mean, you have what eight or nine games, maybe a, t- a days. I mean, or ten days going into the Thursday day game, and then you have a lot of time afterwards. But I mean, the, the Cowboys played last weekend. The the, the Redskins played. I mean, it, it it just it's tough.
2: Well, it's it's your turn this week. I suggested that last week.
1: Yeah. Well, I've suggested it for years. I suggested Roger Goodell four years ago in San – no, five five years ago in San Diego. It looked at me like I was nuts. And they said, Let, let's not ask that question. Let's move on. I went, it makes sense. It made the Pac-10, <laughs> then the Pac-10. They were doing it. No, I didn't want to hear it. Okay, speaking of Thanksgiving Day games, there have been some memorable ones. You know about them. Begin with that November 62 wipeout of the Packers by your Detroit Lions, that's a Thanksgiving Day massacre. Bart Starr was sacked 11 times, and the Packers lost for the only time that year. So my guess is that would be number one in your wheelhouse, right?
2: Yes, sir. One of the greatest defensive game plans ever. And the coordinator who crafted it parlayed that game into an NFL head coaching opportunity the following season. That would be Don Shula. Wow. He took apart Vince Lombardi's best team. Packers had five Hall of Famers in offense. And Class 28 finalist Jerry Kramer would make it six. Mm. You're right. They sacked Bart Starr 11 times, including once for a safety. Detroit forced five turnovers, returning one of the fumbles for a defensive touchdown. They blocked a Green Bay field goal in that 26-14 victory, and you're right, it was the only loss suffered that season. By Lombardi's best team. Remember
1: last year we had Roger Brown on for Thanksgiving weekend. He was talking about his restaurant. What's the cutout he has in his restaurant? (laughs) Bart Starr. Bart Starr. He's still tackling him. Roger
2: Brown had five sacks that game.
1: Yeah. Well, a game I remember was about a decade later. That was the Clint Longley game in 74. And you're in Dallas. I'm sure you remember that one, though I know you weren't in Dallas then. But um, the Redskins versus the Cowboys, two division rivals who were also two very good football teams. Only Dallas had to have that game to avoid playoff elimination. One problem. (laughs) Starting quarterback, Roger Staubach, Hall of Famer Roger Staubach. He went down in the third quarter. And Washington was ahead then at 16-3 to and um, suddenly looked like uh, Doomsday was all about, not their defense, but about their future. And um, Clint Long, he came off the bench, rallied the team, and with 28 seconds left, and they were down 23-17. Threw that 50-yard touchdown pass over the middle, Drew Pearson. Guess what? They won 24-23. And, and Goose, afterwards, you remember you? Were, I think, do you know Blaine, Lye? Nye? Blaine Nye? No, of him. Okay, um, but afterwards, offensive line for the Cowboys, he said afterwards, classic, because long they'd gone into the game unprepared to play. He called it, quote, a triumph of the uncluttered mind, unquote. <laughs> you can't make that stuff up. <laughs> Great stuff. Hey, Coos, before we go farther, um, I want to mention, I mentioned Drew Pearson there. I mean, there he is again making a, a Hall of Fame catch, a, a Hail Mary catch. When are we, or, or you guys, you have the senior committee along with Ron. W- are we going
2: to get him into the pro football hall of fame i don't know every every first team all like wide receiver eligible for the hall from 1930 on has been enshrined in the hall except one drew pearson this is an oversight that needs to be addressed maybe if and when the hall has that amnesty class for its 100th anniversary
1: yeah uh, well i I know people today that they're hot and bothered about guys like tio randy moss Uh, randy's coming up the class of 2018 yet we have someone like drew pearson you mentioned first team all decade choice and super bowl champion
2: he can't get a sniff i mean he can't even get discussed. yeah i i know drew can't figure it out either you know both yeah. second team all decade wideouts from the 70s have bus not pearson owens wasn't even a first team all decade choice and has one fewer ring than pearson you know but drew didn't come up in with the sense of entitlement in the 1970s that these receivers from the 1990s have hey,
1: goose quick I, i'm sorry but i derailed you there and do you have any uh, favorite thanksgiving day memory
2: Oh, my father used to have a – he and his buddies used to play a early morning Thanksgiving yeah. football game at the po- program down, or play a playground down the street. We used to go to it. It was a blast.
1: Yeah, we did the same thing. Well, well that's not going to stop us from playing right now. In fact, we're going to get Ron in here to talk about this week's Hall of Fame semifinals. Ron, come on in. They were announced Tuesday. That's coming up right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.
0: You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio
2: the wait is finally over we have our first cut down for the pro football hall of fame's class of 2018 and the preliminary list of 108 candidates has been reduced to 25 plus ties and that list has arrived with 27 names including first-timers ray lewis and brian urlacher coaches don corey and jimmy johnson and returning finalists alan fanica ty law and john lynch any surprises Ron?
3: Yeah, a few. I thought Everson Walls, but I'm happy to see that, as I know you are. Carl Mecklenburg, glad to see him back. I uh, wasn't sure Atwater was going to uh, resurface. And I'm surprised in the in the opposite direction on Coriel and, and Roger Craig. You know, they've had numerous trips into the room. I don't even know how many it's been. And, and you start to wonder at this point, well, what are we doing? Uh, you keep bringing them back and taking a slot, but they'd have a advance.
2: Yeah, Craig, Craig's been up there once before, and this is his last year right? as a modern era candidate. So if he, if he doesn't get it this year, he's anti the abyss, as you know. <laughs> okay, of, of the 27 semifinalists, run three of Patriots' ties, Ty Law, Richard Seymour, and Randy Moss. Give me your rundown of their candidacies and their chances.
3: Well, I think Law uh, has a strong chance. I really think he should have got in last year, as you pointed out uh, a couple of times that uh, Jason Taylor may have somehow got his slot. Uh, uh, last year, I kind of blamed that on Brady for writing a letter of support for Jason Taylor and not one for <laughs> for Ty Law. Thanks. That was bad. But you know, he's got uh, over fifty picks. He was a starter his entire career at cornerback, unlike most guys. And we've had a number of the old corners talk about how proud they they were when they could still play the position after fourteen years or so. Right. Uh, I really think he was a backbone of their of their Super Bowl defenses, and those were defensive teams, whether people recognize it or not. Uh, so I think he's got the numbers, and I think he's got the rings, and I don't see any reason why he shouldn't be in. Put it this way, his numbers are uh, almost identical uh, to uh, Deion Sanders. And I'm not going to try to make some argument that he was as good as Deion Sanders or better than Deion Sanders, but if your numbers are the same, how do you keep him out? Uh, yeah. Richard Seymour, I think, is uh, was a tremendous defensive lineman and for a period of years was considered the best lineman in pro football. Unfortunately, he plays two-gap mostly defensive tackle position with no stats and i uh i think he too was a central part of that defense that won three super bowls in four years uh i think this is a strong case i think it's going to be hard to convince the voters with the lack of numbers and randy moss i think is you know he primarily was of course a a viking uh, but he had that tremendous first year in in new england uh, where he set all kinds of records Uh, look, he's got the numbers. Uh, I think most people know that he's a Hall of Famer. I think the issue with him will be the same issue that Terrell Owens uh, has wrestled with for a couple years now and is is his off-the-field sort of problems and ramblings and the fact that he was on a number of different teams and uh, famously said, I play when I want to play. Uh, Do the voters hold that against him, at least in the first ballot situation, or not? Uh, Quite frankly, uh, as you know, Goose, I was not one of those guys. Uh, who, who did that with uh, Terrell Owens uh, but I do think if for those who did I don't know how you can make a, a different case for Randy Moss.
2: So, so stack them. What are the chances uh, of these three of standing on the podium next August in Canton?
3: I think Law has a very good chance. I mean he's gotten to the, you know, the final 10 I think uh, Seymour I think it's distant especially at this point although eventually I, th- I think he's got a pretty good chance and I think Randy Moss has a very good chance uh, just because his numbers are,
2: are so fantastic everyone knows what a great player he was yeah, and that's on this list of semifinals. Lots of receivers. Moss, Terrell Owens back. Isaac Bruce, Torrey Holt. You George. love that, don't you, Goose? Seeing all oh, those yes. receivers. Love these receivers because <laughs> I love stats. How many of these guys do you expect to see in the finals? And do you think this is the year we finally break the logjam at wide receiver?
3: Well, uh, certainly not if all five of these guys get through. I would think that the, the St. Louis guys, uh, one of them will make it. Probably Bruce. I think he was the better of the two, frankly. Uh and Owens and Moss. And I think uh, Ward's going to have a harder time as well. Uh, the problem you have when you have, th- if you know, you've seen it at a bunch of positions, goose, when you have three guys that uh, maybe you like uh, Owens yeah. better than Moss. And I like Moss better than Owens, Somebody else likes Bruce. Uh, so they're voting for the guy they like the most and then move into other positions. So they right. could cancel
2: each other out. Yeah. You know, like you mentioned, I was really heartened to see Everson Walls finally make the list of semifinals for the first time. He's in his 20th and final year of eligibility. And he's a player I strongly believe deserves to have his candidacy discussed. He's one of only two players in league history to lead the league in interceptions three times, and the only cornerback. You know, safety at Reed is the other, and he's being touted as a first ballot guy when he becomes eligible in 2019. You know, only four pure corners intercepted more passes than 57 of Walls. Who comes to the table with more career picks than Hall of Famers Deion Sanders, Dale Green, Willie Brown, and Lam Barney? He's my dark horse for this class, Ron. Who's yours? Well, I think that's very strong. My my worry, of course, personally, is if if,
3: if Walls gets in, does that kill uh, Ty Law for another year? Yeah. You know, I mean, they'll put two defensive backs in. I don't know. You know, uh, I think that's going to be an interesting thing to watch. Uh, for me, uh, I think Becklenburg is a long shot. But uh, people are starting to recognize how good a player he was, I think, slowly but surely. And uh, I, I think he's got an outside shot.
2: He's uh, Seymour. He's a guy who did a lot of things and doesn't have a lot of stats. Right. you, you right. got to recognize football to look at Seymour and Mecklenburg. Exactly right. I mean, I've always
3: contended, uh, much to our friend Jeff Legwald's chagrin, uh, that the key guy in those Denver defenses was Mecklenburg, Mm -hmm. Not Gratishar, even though Gratishar had these supposedly 200 tackles a year for 117 years in a row or whatever (laughs) the number was.
2: Yeah, you know, I I feel bad for Giants quarterback Phil Simms and 1980s all-decade guard Bill Freilich, who didn't make the cut in their final years of eligibility. Their careers will never be discussed. And now they tumble into the senior pool, the abyss, where everyone becomes a Hall of Fame long shot. You know, there isn't a quarterback on this list of semifinalists but Freilich lost out to five other offensive line repeaters. Baselli, Fanica, Hutchinson, Jacoby, and Kevin Mawai. Is this the year we finally break the long jam along the offensive line? Yeah, well, I think well, at least one of these
3: guys I think will get in. You know, Hutchinson's got overwhelming uh, uh, statistical, quote-unquote, uh, highlight-type situations with Pro right. Bowls and all that. Uh, great as does Fanica. You know, Baselli falls into the uh, Terrell Davis uh, mode. Uh, he was good, very good, great, uh, but for a short period of time because of injuries. And Jacoby and Maui, uh, you know, I've always kind of looked at Maui as uh, a long shot. And then Bill Parcells and a few other coaches really started pumping his tires. Uh, and I think that hurt a guy like Freilich, who was, everybody forgot because he's, he's 30
2: years ago. He had, some, he had some steam in the room last year. It kind of surprised me. First time guy yeah. in there.
3: He had. Well, everybody knows game. him. You know, I think one yeah. of the things is everybody knows him because of his his uh, very vocal position with the union. And I think people found him, uh, you know, a good player. And then when you have some guys like Parcells really go to bat hard for him, yeah. uh, then
2: I think people take a second look. You know, speaking of knowing him, you know, uh, are the semifinals as good as it's going to get for Craig, possibly Mecklenburg and Leslie O'Neill? A lot of the voters never even saw these guys play. Yeah,
3: I, th- I think you're right. That that's becoming a, a growing problem in the room. I think as guys retire or get uh, rifted out or whatever from the business, and you get more and more guys that haven't seen like you and I have. I don't think there's anybody on this list we haven't seen, uh, uh, and and in many most cases seen quite a bit. And that does change things, which is not to say you can't do your research and talk to a lot of what uh, you know uh, opposing coaches. To me, is always my favorite choice, right, right. Uh, you know, not teammates, because what are they going to say? Uh, you know, like you might rip me if they come to the talk of fame, but you're going to say Clark's a good guy, and you know, and I'm going <laughs> to say you're
2: both good guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, I'm kind of surprised both Simeon Rice and O'Neill have been eligible and th- this is the first time they appear as some phones. After all, well, wait, I'm just curious why they, they popped up. Well, I'll tell
3: you, I think we had a lot to do with that, and Talk of Fame uh, uh, Network has had a lot to do with that. You know, We uh, presented those guys' cases on our State your Cases. We uh, talked to them on the show. Uh, those things got out to other people. Uh, you know, I don't, don't want to break my arm pat- patting ourselves on the back, as my mother would say. Yeah. Uh, but I do think that these guys were lost, and, and we dug them up, and people started to take a second look and said, Hey, wait a minute. Gee, really? Uh, Now, to me, that's the responsibility of each one of the voters. But for various and sundry reasons, I'm not sure everybody has the time or, or, or in some cases, probably the inclination to
2: dig as deep into some of these guys as we have. That means it's time for Ron's favorite segment. And ours, too. Borges or bogus? So so what do you see as bogus this
3: week, Ron? Well, this one was an easy one, uh, Goose. Uh, Sean McDermott says, quote, I remain confident in Nathan Peterman. If that's true, Sean McDermott is not fit to coach another NFL game. (laughs) Now, maybe that statement was as bogus as Peterman's performance last Sunday when he threw five picks in less than 15 passes, a feat done only once outside of the 1930s, and that's when poor Archie Manning was running for his life with the Saints in 1973. But if McDermott actually believes what he said in his futile effort to justify benching Tyrod Taylor in favor of an ill-prepared Peterman, then he is the one who is bogus. If the first-year Bills coach wants to lose his locker room, he's well on his way. Nobody likes scapegoating, and putting the Bills' three-game losing skid on Taylor was ludicrous on a team who, since Week 5, Goose, ranks last in points allowed and last in yards allowed, giving up 32.5 a game in points and 407 yards a game. Huh. How about benching the defense? Buffalo started off 5-2, and two, and Tyrod was one of the reasons why. No one's saying he's Tom Brady. But under Taylor's direction, the Bills had only seven turnovers in their first nine games, and only three were interceptions. Peterman topped the latter in less than a half, and the Bills nearly matched their season total on it, just in Sunday's game. That led McDermott to conclude, and I quote, "Goose, it was it was hard to see on the surface with the result being what it was, but hey, we're moving the ball. Yeah, if reverse is moving. <laughs> when Taylor came into this disaster he inherited in the second half, he acted and played professionally as he's done all season. He went 15 of 25." threw it for a touchdown, ran for a touchdown, did not throw a pick. This led McDermott to say he was evaluating the situation. First-year head coaches make mistakes, and mistakes can be survived, but stubbornness cannot, and neither can willful blindness to the obvious. To do the latter is not only bogus for a head coach, it's fatal. (laughs) It certainly is. Do you think they can even salvage Peterman? I think Peterman's, uh, you know, I don't know how he goes back and plays for those guys. Uh, And I I don't know how the coach survives if he tries to go back and convince them that this guy is the guy that gives the best chance to win.
2: Well, stay tuned. We have legendary Lions kick returner Mel Gray up next to talk about Thanksgiving football in Detroit and also the quest for return specialists to be recognized in Canton. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.
0: listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Our
1: first guest, Mel Gray, was one of the NFL's greatest kick returners of all time. Led the league in pump returns twice and kickoff returns twice and became the first player in NFL history with 10,000 career return yards. 10,000. He returned nine career kicks for touchdowns and was named to the NFL's all-decade team for the 1990s. Yet as a special teamer, he can't get a sniff from the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And, you know, no surprise there. There are only two pure kickers. One pure punter and no return specialist in Canton. But Mel went to four Pro Bowls Alliance, so we've invited him to join us today to talk about, of course, Detroit's Thanksgiving tradition, returning kicks, and the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Hey, Mel, thanks so much for being here.
2: My
4: pleasure. Thank you for having me.
2: Hey, Mel, let's start with this week, Thanksgiving week. The Lions have played an annual Thanksgiving Day game since 1934, and you played in six of them. What makes that game special?
4: Well, wow. It's, uh, it's a, an exciting game. It's like the Super Bowl uh, in a way that, you know, there's only a couple of two teams playing on that day, and most of the fans around the country will be watching while celebrating Thanksgiving Day with their family. So it's a game in which you want to do well. You want to, you know, uh, actually show your, your, your skills and, and uh, end up with, uh, you know, Thanksgiving dinner afterwards.
1: You know, it's funny you mentioned that, Mel, because Goose and I were talking earlier about a game that we watched a long, long time ago, 1962, and it was the Lions and the Packers. And we were all watching it. The whole country was. And it was like a Super Bowl, and the Lions won big that day, and and Bart Starr got sacked 11 times. But that's a favorite memory of (laughs) Goose's and mine. But I'm going to ask you, do you have a favorite memory from those Thanksgiving Day games that either you participated in or you watched? Well, I'll
4: tell you what, I've had so many memories, but I think... The game that really stands out was a game, I believe, uh, against the Buffalo Bills. You know, they were four-time NFC champions. Uh, Kelly and the crew came in. Uh, We won the game, I believe, 35 to 20, 21 or something like that. Uh, And a number of guys had outstanding games. I know Herman Moore, he had an outstanding game, seven catches uh, for 169 yards. Kevin Pritchett sacked Jim Kelly probably three, four times. Um, I remember Willie Clay. Clay had an outstanding game in which he turned one ball back for um, 28 yards that really f- sealed the game for us.
2: Hmm. Now you played all of your Thanksgiving games at the Silver Dome, and I remember I was there for that home playoff game in '91 against the Cowboys, and that place was electric. Oh. But, but oh, the Lions okay. have since moved back down to Ford Field, and believe it or not, the Silver Dome will be imploded hmm. in two weeks. Wow.
4: Will you miss that place? (laughs) You bet you. A (laughs) lot of memories for me in that stadium. You know, I had a lot of exciting moments. Um, You know, there was a lot of uh, great plays made in that in in that dome. Um, I can still hear the fans screaming and howling. So, (laughs) you know, going to Ford Field, I'm sure it's a great complex and all, but it won't give me the memories that I've gotten over the years, especially, you know, uh, I know when I go over there now, I, you know, I, I can still hear the fans roaring. but, you know, going to yeah. the new field, you just don't get the same feeling. Right.
1: Mel, do you want to try to take anything away from that place, like a seat or a piece of the concrete <laughs> yeah. or anything like that?
4: <laughs> you got to have something from it. Yeah. The memories, is it's just too many memories in that stadium. Uh, it, yeah. it's, it's so unfortunate, but.
1: Yeah, well, I guess that's progress. That's what they call it. But um, we're speaking with former return specialist Mel Gray on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at at talkoffamenet. And, Mel, like I said earlier, you've never been a Hall of Fame semifinalist or finalist, but you aren't alone. I mean, Brian Mitchell, Dante Hall, Dave Meggett, Desmond Howard, um, Billy White Shoes Johnson. I mean, none of the elite return specialists in the game's history have ever been discussed. So tell me. What has the Hall of Fame Selection Committee been missing when it comes to the evaluation of return specialists?
4: Oh, wow. Unbelievable. They'll be missing a lot. It's a shame because, you know, you're talking about uh, the guys that, you know, that that created some great memories, you know, uh, within the NFL. You know, you're talking about some of the biggest plays that have been made, some of the most exciting moments in football history have been made by returners. Uh, great players like Johnson, Mitchell, Rick Upchurch, you know, to name a few. You know, they don't realize how many great plays these guys made. And when deciding on whether or not to induct these guys into the Hall of Fame, they're not only going to be missing the great plays that they put together, but the fans will be missing some of the great names that actually made those plays happen.
1: Hey, quick question for you. If, If you had to induct one specialist other than yourself... Who would it be?
4: Oh, one specialist other than myself. Yeah. Uh, It would be, well, it's hard. Uh, Rick Upchurch, I grew up watching him. Made some great plays. Brian Mitchell was a a force out there. You know, he made a lot of tough plays. It was unbelievable how he made his plays because he pretty much forced his way through (laughs) because he was so big and strong. If I were to choose one other than myself, it would be probably Brian Mitchell. Because uh, he did it consistently, like I did, you know, he uh, made the plays in, in, in moments when it was needed. Um, there's some good names. I mean, he got a young guy right now, uh, Hester, right? You know, right. been doing very well. Uh, I like the way he runs the ball. But you know, we to him consistently over a long period of time. I would choose Brian Mitchell. Okay. Let me ask you this: Do you think the word
2: specialist works against you? Um, They don't call them quarterback specialists or running back specialists. They make it look like you guys are part-time players, that particular term. Does the term
4: specialist work against you? No, it don't work against me because a specialist, uh, as long as you get out there and do your job, especially as somebody who can perfect their job uh, in that area, and that's what I did. And I think that name started to come about uh, because of the fact that I was put in that position to do only that. but from a Detroit Lions standpoint, they felt that my value was so such that they would actually use me strictly at that. And of course, you know, uh, that's when the salary started going up. So they, they felt that my worth was in the salary that they paid me because I got the job done. I, I did what they needed me to do. The um, sports as as field position, uh, creating opportunities for them when it counts, Like you know, during the playoff game in Green Bay, making things happen when, uh, you know the other phases of the game is sort of you know not really getting it done, and a specialist will come out and make the big play when it's needed, and that's what I did, and that's the that's why you have a specialist, <laughs> you know, yeah. so he can get the job done when it's, when when needed.
2: You know, returning kickoffs and punts are two different arts, two different skills. You need speed on kickoff returns to hit the seam and quickness on punt returns to avoid that first wave of tacklers. You are the rare player who excelled at both. Which of the two did you find more challenging?
4: Wow. Yeah, I found punt returns very challenging because in punt returns, you have to do a lot more focusing. You have to make decisions in split seconds uh, as far as uh, uh, trying to figure out whether to it, catch the ball, run it back, or let it go. There's so many things that you have to contend with as well as making uh, a decision to run the ball effectively up field. So I would say that punt returns is much more challenging than kick returns.
2: Isn't the kickoff the most dangerous play in football, though, with the high-speed collisions?
4: Well, yeah, that's, that's true. It's because you're, you get the ball at the end zone and you run it full tilt upfield. So if you you're actually uh, if you collide with someone, there's a, that's a serious impact. And it could cause some serious damage. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's very dangerous. <laughs> <What>? Very dangerous. <laughs> but, you know, you can also get the danger from the punt return as well because, you know, looking up in the air, a guy coming full speed and just standing still. So you can really get screamed at that moment.
1: That's yeah. why they used to call them suicide squads.
4: <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, we're, we're speaking with former return specialist Mel Gray on the Talk of Fame Network. and. Mel, I don't know if you know it or not. You probably do. You're the oldest guy in NFL history. You turn a kickoff for a touchdown, and you ran back three of them, three at the age of 33 in 1994. Most return specialists have about a three- or four-year window of of greatness. How did you keep your window open for 10 years?
4: Well, uh, (laughs) preparation. I felt it was very important. Yeah, I felt it was very important to take care of myself and my body. You know, uh, I wanted to play the game, and I wanted to play it effectively. And it was like, uh, you know, uh, I played every game like it was my last game. And I, I think I always kept the hunger for the game. I, I wanted to prove that I could get it done every time I stepped on the field. And, and since I was healthy, you know, when I hit the field, I felt there was no reason for me to go out there and, and tiptoe. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to get the job done, so I went full tilt every down. And fortunately, uh, with the supporting cast that I had, it was, um, you know, it was able to work out for me.
2: Mel, by my count, you had eight returns in your career of 80 yards or more. Six of your touchdowns came on kickoffs. Three more came on punts. What's the one kick or punt return in your life that would define Mel Gray as a
4: Hall of Famer? Interesting. Okay. (laughs) You know, I I tell you what, I'm I'm looking at the, well, there's two. uh, Minnesota, I remember the Minnesota game when we were, uh, you know, uh, in a position where we needed some big plays, and I bobbed and weaved through the the uh, a bunch of guys, a 94-yard run. I probably maybe probably four or five guys missed. But I think the game I would actually look at that would define me is the Green Bay game, 33 below zero. We couldn't get things moving. You know, the running game with Barry was ineffective. Right. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was tough out there, and I was able to make up my mind. Grab the ball in the cold, freezing weather. The footing wasn't good, and I was able to uh, run back. Uh, I can't remember how long the touchdown was. It was probably about a 90-yarder. 90 uh, 91. Help cap the game. Wow. 91-yarder to help I cap the game and, and seal it so we were able to get in the playoff. I think that yeah. really that was defines that me game. because it's very difficult for me to get myself prepared mentally because of the coldness mm-hmm. and the footing.
1: Wow, yeah, I mean, yeah, in it, weather like that, doesn't it, it, doesn't it doesn't just hurt to catch the ball? I mean, we, we go out and throw yeah. the we throw the ball around outside when it was like twenty degrees yeah. as kids, and it it stunk. Yeah.
4: yeah, the ball was like a uh, a block right. of ice. I mean, yeah. it was really right. slick and hard. So, was, so my focus had to be right there, and I knew everybody was looking. Wayne was like, "Man, you got to take it back." So I was able to. <laughs> my main focus was to catch the ball because, like I said, it was so difficult to catch it. It was so hard and slick. But once I caught it, I knew I had to make my way up the field. and When I seen the opening, I was able to move through it, make a couple of the guys miss him, and take it in for the touchdown.
1: Hey, Bell, I want to ask you a question about the beginning of your pro career, and that was back in the USFL with the uh, LA Express. You started as a, a running back, but you never mm-hmm. returned a punt for the Express and, and only I think only dabbled in kickoff returns. My question is, how did you evolve into such an elite return specialist in the NFL if you only did that with the Express?
4: Yeah, I had a desire to play the game. And I remember being in New Orleans after the USFL with Jim Marr with the Saints. And we had a couple of running backs. We had Dalton Hilliard, who we drafted in the second round. Ruben Mage in the third round. Of course, we had Buford Jordan uh, and a few other running backs. And I remember Joe Marziano coming to me and said, Mel, you know, we know you're an outstanding running back. You know, you were the only guys who rushed for 100 yards against our defense in the USFL, uh, Philadelphia Stars. But we want to keep you but we can't keep you at a running back. You've got to be able to catch a punch or kick. Of course, I couldn't do that. You know, I wasn't a kick returner. I did right. it sparingly uh, a couple of times in the USFL, and i never caught punts a day in my life, and it was so fearful to get back there and try and catch them. So he said, the only way you can make this team is to catch kickoffs. So I started to catch kickoffs at practice, and he said, we need you to catch punts too if you're going to make this team. So I had to come in in the offseason. Uh, I remember uh, catching 100 balls off the chute, you know, the machine a day. And if I dropped one, I had to start over. So I was able to finally get up the nerves to, you know, feel comfortable enough in a game situation to do it. And once I got my first big return, you know, the confidence came and rest, you know, I just kept doing it. We did a heck of a job.
1: Mel Gray, thanks for the time and happy Thanksgiving to you.
4: Thank you. Same to you. Thank
1: you. You're going to be watching the Lions uh, on Thursday? I'm going to be watching the Lions on Thursday, for sure. Good. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was former return specialist Mel Gray. Up next, it's a two-minute drill.
0: You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. You guys hear that sound?
2: That's the two-minute warning. Yep, it means we're almost out of time, and I've got the drill this week. So, Ron, strap on that seatbelt. Here we go. Okay. Who's the best team in the NFC, Eagles, Saints, or Vikings?
3: I used an informal uh, point system of my own creation, Gooseman, to decide this. I gave three points for first, two for second, and one for third in each offensive and defensive category. And There was only a one-point swing from first to third with the Eagles coming out on top, Minnesota second, and New Orleans
2: third. So I'll go with the Eagles. But Drew Brees may ruin the whole thing. What's the best thing about NFL games in Mexico? Burrito
3: stands and the Patriots having to walk through the crowd to get to the locker room. Much to Bill Belichick's joy.
2: (laughs) Should there be an asterisk placed on Steven Gostkowski's 62-yard field goal in Mexico City?
3: Only if you're going to put an asterisk all over the record books of Jason Elam, who kicked in Denver. Thin air or not, you still got to kick it straight and long. How do you think Bill's
2: coach Sean McDermott views Tyrod Taylor now?
3: <laughs> I think the bigger question is how does Tyrod and his teammates view him, Sean McDermott, <laughs> idiot?
2: <laughs> Can the curve rookie Bills quarterback Nathan Peterman be salvaged after his five interception debut as a starting quarterback?
3: I would say not in Buffalo, and if he doesn't have a crisis of confidence, he's got the most confidence of anybody in history.
2: <laughs> Mark Ingram, Melvin Ingram, or Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. Teddy Pendergrass, he made the Blue Notes really sing. <laughs> Dak Prescott was sacked 10 times in the first eight games with Tyrone Smith protecting his blindside and 12 times in the last two games with Smith out. So what's Smith worth to the Cowboys? A uh, hell of a lot more than he was two weeks ago, <laughs> I will tell you. <laughs> <laughs> the Broncos fired offensive coordinator Mike McCoy this week. Who should be blamed for Denver's offensive mess? Quarterbacks Trevor, Trevor Siemian and Brock Osweiler, head coach Van Joseph, GM John Elway, or McCoy?
3: There's plenty of blame to go around, but to me, it's got to go to John Elway. He got all the credit when they started doing well and winning the Super Bowl. What's up now, John?
2: The Chicago Bears cut their kicker. Does that mean the 11 starters on the NFL's 26th-ranked defense are now safe? No, it just means there was no salary Crab hit if you whacked the kicker. How is it possible for a team with a $100 million quarterback to rank last in the NFL passing? As the Baltimore Ravens have done, Joe Flacco. Because they paid an ordinary Joe too much that's the end of our first hour but stay where you are coming up we have former cowboys fullback daryl moose johnson plus our weekly state your case you're listening to the
0: talk of fame network you're listening to the talk of fame network on SB nation radio find the show on twitter at talk of fame (laughs) net Here are your hosts, Rick Goslin, Ron Borges, and Clark Judge. Welcome back
1: to our number two of the Talk of Fame Network, Thanksgiving edition of the Talk of Fame Network. And I see that Ron has left the studio again. You know, keep track of that guy, Goose. Must be that tequila he got last week when he and Ulysses Harada went out on the town. We had Ulysses here on the show last weekend. And, Goose, um, did you see that story about Ulysses and his website, that'd be Primero E. Diaz, profiled in last week's New
2: York Times? Yes, I did. Impressive. You know, we've known wow. Ulysses for several years now, and he is the king of the Mexican media when it comes to the NFL. His website is terrific, and some of his work, have, you know, has appeared on our website. You know, and the yeah. attention he's getting from the Times is well deserved. Wow! I mean, that
1: was really cool. Very, very nice. Great exposure for him. I guess my question to you, Goose, is: What do you think the New York Times is going to profile us
2: when GQ names you Citizen <laughs> of the Year?
1: Well, I guess we're going to be waiting for a while. Anyway, I have a quick question for you here uh, on another subject. Uh, Pittsburgh's Antonio Brown, uh, who he still may be running through that Tennessee defense. He has 700 career catches, Goose. 700, and he did them faster than anyone in NFL history. And, of course, people are going to say, sit down, Goose, here. People are going to yeah. say, wow. future Hall of Famer, Antonio Brown, future Hall of Famer. Uh, but I say, you know, future headache, and, and not because of Antonio Brown, but because of all those catches. I mean, so many receivers today are putting up such inflated numbers that it really, it seems to make it difficult to have a conversation, any conversation about deserving whiteouts, especially receivers in the senior pool who don't have them and, and Goose, I, I worry that we're beginning to tilt not so much to the Pro Football Hall of Fame as much as we are at the Fantasy Football Hall of Fame.
2: Yeah, five years from now, we'll have a group of 15 finalists that include 11 wide receivers and a couple pass rushers. Those are the guys who generate all the stats in today's NFL, which more resembles a video game than an actual game of football. Now, does that mean that Antonio Brown is a better receiver than, say, Charlie Hannigan? No, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. if you want to look a Sabermetrics Hall of Fame, give him a bust right now.
1: Yeah, and not just Hennigan. I mean, look at a guy like Max Beattie Goose, um, yeah. six-time All-Pro in seven years. In those seven seasons, he went to a championship game every year, um, and he was a, a, four-time, a, a, a four-time champion. But I, I just think you look at guys like that, you go, how can you miss them? I don't know. I bet, bet they fall through the cracks. Anyway, it makes no sense. But what does? Well, our salute to Thanksgiving, that's what, with our parade of quarterbacks coming up next. Hey, Macy's has a parade. Why can't we? We can, and we will, next. This is the Talk of the Network.
0: You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio.
1: Well, some people, like our Dr. Data, that would be Rick Gosselin, says it's not Thanksgiving without a game in Detroit. I think probably Mel Gray would say the same thing. But I say it's not Thanksgiving without a parade in Manhattan. And I'm talking, of course, of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Yeah, I, I went to plenty of them when we lived in the city. Um, went to the staging uh, at the Natural History Museum the night before. That was really cool. Now it's just thousands of people. It's like gridlock. But uh, then the next day, we'd sit on the wall in Central Park West. And that was really cool, too. And, and just we loved every minute of it, my wife, my uh, daughter. And uh, we had a great time. Um, Goose, I know you lived in New York, and that was a long time ago. But did you ever go to the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade?
2: Well, I went once there, but... There was an annual parade in Detroit as well, Ah. sponsored by the Macy's of Motown, which was J.L. Hudson's. And my father was a fleet superintendent at Hudson's for a stretch, and he was in charge of getting all the floats into the parade and in order. And it was locally televised, and that's how we started our day every Thanksgiving. And then it was on the Lions Packers.
1: Wow, is is that your favorite memory of Thanksgiving Day that I mean, like that parade in Detroit, or was it the, the football game, or was it the, the games that you played? You know, it was, as kids, it was, a, it,
2: was, a, it, was a, it was always Lions Packers. When I was growing up, it was always Lions Packers. Mm-hmm. You know, Lombardi's best team was always coming in here. That it's, it's, it was a football, yeah.
1: Okay, well, it, in terms of just the parades, because I said we went to we probably went to ten of them. Um, mine was when our daughter was about she was about five, and she got caught up in the middle of the Baltimore Ravens marching band. We'd come off the wall. we were standing on the sidewalk on Central park west and here's the marching band it's assembling on the sidewalk and uh it was nothing bad or awkward but um the ravens band members they they couldn't have been nicer and she got sort of swallowed up in there and she said could you take your picture with me and they said "Ah, sure so she gets a tuba then she gets a clarinet we had pictures taken we got some great photos uh, uh, from that and and photos that are on our wall but uh i mentioned that goose because as i said earlier if they can have a parade in manhattan well i'm segueing here why can't we have one here and we can and we're going to. In fact, we're going to have a parade of young quarterbacks, the young quarterbacks in today's NFL with our website, which is Talk of Fame Network, uh, listing uh, six of them, Goose? We have six last week yes, uh, in the poll. And, and I know you tabulated the results. So, I mean, tell us right here, who's going to be the grand marshal of this year's quarterback parade?
2: Well, we asked our listeners, readers, which young quarterback would you build an NFL franchise around? Right. Carson Wentz won going away with better than 80% of the vote, topping Dak Prescott, Jared Goff, Deshaun Watson, Marcus Mariota, and Jameis Winston, all fairly high picks last two or three years. All are 24 years of age or younger, and all except Prescott were first-round picks.
1: So is Carson Wentz the guy you would have chosen?
2: Yeah, I voted Wentz. I think he's been the MVP of the league this season. He leads the league in touchdown passes. And the Eagles are 8-1, the best team in football. He's thrown five touchdown passes of 50 yards or more to four different receivers. His legs extend plays, and he doesn't turn the ball over. Just four interceptions and, uh, and almost 300 passes. What's not to like about him or his game this season?
1: Gooseman? I was trying to I was trying to vote for Jimmy Garoppolo in there. I couldn't find his name, but it was Jimmy Garoppolo. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> hey, um, you're a draft expert, Goose. Um, when Carson Wentz came out of North Dakota State, uh, some people were worried, That he didn't play in a big time program and they were knocking him. Were you, and and would you have made him one of your two top draft picks that year? And and honestly, be honest with me. I mean, if you were to go back then, take yourself back to that draft, would he have been one of your two top picks?
2: Well, I don't watch tape. I talk to the people that know football, the people that do draft players. Well, you know football. You know football. Based on my discussions with drafters a year ago, I might have taken him first overall. Hmm. I know some teams did have him at the top of their board. Sure, he was coming from a 1AA program, but the draft is all about measurables, and he had all the measurables, height, weight, speed, arm strength, plus intelligence, leadership skills, leadership skills, ter- charisma. I knew there would be a learning curve, right. and he certainly had his struggles last season with those 14 interceptions, winning only 7 of his 16 starts. But the great ones always make a quantum leap between the first and second NFL seasons. I saw it from Marino, Elway, Manning, Aikman, and now we're seeing it from Wentz.
1: Goose, were you concerned at all that that would be a tough place for him to grow? And, and I'm talking about Philadelphia, just because the fans are so tough on quarterbacks, tough place for Donovan McNabb to succeed, and and yet he did succeed.
2: <laughs> Philadelphia, they hate your team. They hate their team. They hate your quarterback. They hate their quarterback. They hate
1: your coach. They hate their coach. Of course, they're not happy unless they're miserable. The fans aren't happy unless they're miserable. Okay, as you mentioned, we we had a dog pile behind him. And uh, I'll be honest here. I I thought there'd be more of a push with Dak Prescott and or Deshaun Watson. Um, And I understand. Listen, I understand we have a small and a very small sample size with Deshaun Watson. But what's not to like about the guy? And, And Dak Prescott, I mean, you're in Dallas. It seems as if he's the real deal. He's a guy who can run. He can pass. He can leave.
2: And he can win. Yeah, but a strength in the game of both Prescott and Watson right now is their legs. Right. Prescott has already rushed for five touchdowns this season, and Watson had a 49-yard touchdown run uh, earlier than the season. Championships continue to be won by the passers. Some figure it out. Elway did. So did Steve Young. They come to rely more on their arms than their legs, and I think the jury is still out on Prescott and Watson. Prescott is still the only quarterback in the NFC without a 300-yard passing game this season.
1: Goose, you were wrong there. Championships continue to be won by Tom Brady. That's my Tom Brady plug for this week, by the way. A passer. <laughs> A passer. Um, as I mentioned, um, you're around the Cowboys; you, you see him all the time. Uh, what's the quality you most like in Dak Prescott? And, and do you think he's the quarterback? You talked about legs, the quarterback for the long haul.
2: Yeah, I, I think he's got some special, some special to him. He's got he's long on intangibles. Mm-hmm. His confidence, his leadership. He doesn't beat himself. His turnovers and his fumbles are few. I think he has a lot of the same traits as Donovan McNabb, mm-hmm. although I recall McNabb having a stronger arm. If he becomes Donovan McNabb and takes the Cowboys to four consecutive NFC yeah. title games, I think Dallas will be pretty happy with their quarterback. Yeah, I, yeah, think, I, so I think he's in for the long haul, though.
1: Yeah, and in McNabb, five in eight seasons, five right. championship games in right. a Super Bowl. Um, Goose, why no love for Jared Goff?
2: That one puzzles me. Maybe because he sat on the bench on a very bad team for more than half a season as a rookie, and he didn't dazzle when he did get on the field. And there was talk at the end of the year that the Rams took the wrong guy. That's right. They should have taken Wentz. But but a new coordinator, new weapons, new blockers, and he's a different quarterback this season. Like Prescott and Wentz, he doesn't turn the ball over. From what I've seen in 2018, he was deserving of the first overall choice of his draft. This is the type of guy you want to find at the top of the draft board.
1: Yeah, the problem with today's um, you know news cycle is everyone wants to have an immediate analysis, and you're right. And people were using the word "bust" on him at the end of the season. And I remember Drew Brees when when the Chargers drafted him, and for three years he did nothing there. And then they drafted Philip Rivers, and they go, "Ah, Drew Brees is a bust." In the fourth year, take some division championship, and now of course we know what Drew Brees has become. But that immediate. Analysis that immediate evaluation, boy. It just you got to wait to
2: let these guys pan out. You want them on the field right away, and you want them to succeed right away, and most don't.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, another question about two others. You surprised that Mariota and, and Winston finished so far down the board?
2: Eh, not really. You know, although only two quarterbacks on that list have gone to the Pro Bowl, mm-hmm. Prescott and Winston. Winston suffered a shoulder injury. He is now off the field. His Bucks have been, been one of the NFL's biggest disappointments. Mariota can't seem to stay healthy. He's missed right. games as a rookie in 2015 right. and again this season. But when he did stay healthy in 2016, he threw 26 touchdowns and only nine interceptions. And I think right now it's, it's the latest is the greatest mentality. Mm-hmm. Goff, Winston, R. Watson, uh, Prescott, um, Wentz, but just, they're more recent.
1: Yeah, now you mentioned Mariota, and, and, and honestly, he's a guy who intrigues me because when he came out, I really thought he was the better of those two draft picks between uh, him and, and Winston, but I thought he really was a can't-miss prospect. And, and I heard what Chris Collinsworth said the other night, and you know, this is a budding star and future star, but i, I could be honest with you. I'm not so sure now, and it has nothing to do with that Steelers game, um, and, and it has everything to do with his up-and-down performances. As you mentioned, injuries. And his inability to me to take over a game like some of the, the old guys, you know, a, a Brady, a Rogers, or Breeze. I mean, I, I never feel like he's the guy that can shoulder the load and, and take him down the field again and again. He's done it on occasion, but – you know, with Brady and Rodgers and Brees, you just go, here it comes.
2: I, I, I never look look at his weapons. Look at his weapons. His favorite targets is tight end. They drafted mm-hmm. a wide receiver in the top ten, Corey Davis, West Michigan. He's already missed six games with a hamstring injury. When the Rams put better receivers around Goff and the Eagles put better receivers around Wentz, their careers took off this yeah. season. Better receivers will make Mariota a better quarterback. Breeze, Brady, and Rodgers didn't take over games in their first two or three seasons either. Yeah,
1: that's right. Um, anyway, speaking of tight ends, Brady's, one of Brady's favorite targets at tight end. Um, one other question, Goose. Would Dak Prescott have been your second choice?
2: Yeah, I, I, I found Watson very interesting. Yeah, He plays seven games. He's got a five-touchdown pass game against the Chiefs, a couple four-touchdown pass game, t- PD test games against Tennessee and Seattle, 300-yard pass game against Seahawks. I think he's the Russell Wilson of this group.
1: Wow, wow. Russell Wilson. I love Russell Wilson. Anyway, I see Santa coming by on a float, Goose, uh, so that must mean <laughs> our parade is just about <laughs> finished. But we're not. Nope. We've got plenty more in store for you, so don't go away. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.
0: You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio.
2: Ron Clark and I were talking young quarterbacks in the last segment while you were in the kitchen nibbling on that turkey dressing. Now you and I can start having some fun and talk about something very near and dear to our own football hearts, defense. We've seen great defenses of late win Super Bowls like the 2016 Broncos, 2013 Seahawks, but there's been a defensive revival this season that gives me confidence that another great defense can carry a team to the playoffs, and there are several candidates. Jacksonville leads AFC South, and also has the NFL's top-ranked defense. Pittsburgh leads the AFC North, ranks fourth in defense. Minnesota, of course, leads the NFC North, ranks fifth in defense. Philadelphia has the best record at nine and one and ranks in the top five defensively in both sacks and takeaways. So, Ron, how do you explain this defensive revival in a game where all the rules are stacked against you?
3: Well, I think you know. All things are cyclical in a copycat league like the NFL, as you know, Gooseman. Uh, Defenses have finally begun to adjust, I think, to some of the rules restrictions and find some other ways to take away some of those throws, most often uh, some combination of five and and sometimes six DBs. A lot of times you're seeing three safeties out there instead of three corners. New England's doing a lot of that this year. And I think this is forcing offenses. uh, Now they look out there, they see the smaller players, well, we're going to run the ball more. And uh, uh, some defenses, the good ones, are doing a better job shutting that down, uh, and I think that begins to negate uh, the degree of the offensive advantage that the rules have, have built in. Um, but you still have to, to me, the key thing for if you're going to have a great defense in the present situation, you've got to be able to get to that quarterback yeah. regularly with four guys. If you have to keep gambling with blitzes like Tennessee did, tried a couple weeks ago against Pittsburgh, you're going to get hammered.
2: Right? Yeah. Look. Look at the Saints, Ron. A- almost overnight. They've resurrected as a Super Bowl contender. You know, Drew Brees has been there all along, but now the Saints have a defense that can compete when he's not on the field. A year ago, New Orleans ranked 27th in defense and allowed an average of 28 points a game. This season, they vaulted to 13th in defense, allowing an average of 19 points a game. Little wonder they're 8-2. A little defense in this league seems to go a long way, doesn't it, Ron?
3: Well, sure, it does, and and, and to be fair, because you and I were around when their defenses were really playing, that's what you're getting is a little defense, but it looks like a lot. You know, there, But we're not seeing the 85 Bears or the 69 no. Chiefs or the 76 Steelers type of defense, and we're not going to because of the rules. Uh, you're not talking about shutdown defenses, uh, but you are talking about slowdown defenses. Uh, oftentimes, these, these guys are still giving up a lot of yards, but when they settle down into the red zone and the offense has less room to uh, maneuver themselves and use the rules to their advantage, that's when these kind of defenses can really uh, still stick it to you. And then if they can get after the
2: quarterback a little bit, they can change the game. Yeah, I love watching that Minnesota Rams game last week because it, yeah. it, it, it was two really good defense just you know going – You know, fist for fist, not like the old Pittsburgh and Baltimore. And, you know, Jacksonville's like that. That's the best story of all. The Jaguars built a shutdown defense in a remarkably short order. They signed the likes of Calais Campbell, A.J. Boye, and Barry Church in free agency. They traded for Pro Bowl defensive tackle Marcel Darius and drafted cornerback Jalen Ramsey and linebacker Miles Jack all in the last two years all now start. They've allowed the fewest yards and the fewest points in the NFL. The Jaguars also have the most takeaways and the most sacks. Does anybody want to play a defense like this in the playoffs, run? Uh,
3: no, I don't think that they do, but I think they do want to play their offense. <laughs> and in play the Bortles. end, Yeah, in the end, I think that's what's going to get them and why I don't think they're going to survive uh, in the long run because uh, – uh, their offense is just uh, more easy to shut down, certainly than the Patriots' offense or the Steelers' offense. So you may get good play from your defense, uh, but they're trying to shut down a much better offense. And I think eventually that will that will get to Jacksonville, where maybe it didn't back in the day when when you had say the two thousand Ravens, yeah. where they had me playing quarterback, but it didn't matter.
2: Yeah, and to, you know, win a Super Bowl at Trent Dilfer, you you you'd have hope that you could win a Super Bowl play portals, but. I'll tell you, this defense looks to be something special. Yeah, great. You, know, you know, people forget that when the Patriots started their dynasty, they were a defense first team. You know, a couple of players off that defense are now Hall of Fame candidates on that list of semifinalists, Richard Seymour and Ty Law. You know, Bill Belichick is a defensive coach who believes in defense. Yet the Patriots rank last in the NFL in defense this season. And and they're the one team at the top of the standings really bucking that trend. You know, I know defense has been better of late, Ron. But why the otherwise defensive collapse this season for the Patriots?
3: Uh, well, I think early on, you know, they had a lot of new faces, and and they had con- confusion, and they had communication problems, in this, particularly in the secondary. Uh, and, and I think that really had to work itself out, which which it has. Uh, you know, their, their their defense now, statistically, if you look, I always find this is a weird stat. You know, they're last in the league. They're still they're still thirty second in the league. But to me, the only yeah. number that means anything is points, and they're thirteenth yeah. in the league in points allowed because uh, they're very very tough in the red zone, uh, and they still give up a lot of yards. But the shorter that field gets, uh, the tougher it gets uh, for the opposition. Yeah, they allowed the fewest points in the league last
2: year. Exactly. I mean, uh-huh. they they're a lot of yards, but not many points. You know, I go back to um, the year that the Colts won it. You yeah, know, they were they ranked. Very low indeed. They're one of the lowest-ranked Super Bowl teams ever. Twenty-first uh, defense, but boy, from like Thanksgiving on, when they got healthy, they really played good defense, and that appears to be what the what the Patriots are doing now. They're they're actually competitive on defense now. Yeah, no, they they, they
3: really uh, uh, they do two things. They force a lot of turnovers, uh, and they're very tough uh, in the red zone. And they make very few, uh, unlike early in the season, where they, you know most of the time their problems were not guys getting beat like we've got a weakness at this position. Most of their problems was I don't know what to do or I don't know what you're going to do. I mean, there were a couple of plays by Gilmore, Stephen Gilmore, the corner they got from Buffalo, who's now been playing great, uh, where it looked like he never played football before. You know, he's chasing guys. <laughs> where the hell is he going? Uh, now, you eliminate that uh, and you eliminate those kinds of plays, uh, and you've got a much better defense. But they're still on the books, and so when you add up the numbers, uh, statistically,
2: at least on total yardage, it doesn't look good. Okay, explain to me, Kyle Van Noy. Detroit couldn't wait to get rid of this guy. Right. They traded with Patriots. All of a sudden, this guy looks like a, a, a pretty good defensive player. What, what's going on when those guys arrive in New England? Well,
3: you know, uh, no disrespect to anybody else, but I think to a degree they're getting better coaching, uh, in particular from Bill Belichick himself. I think that's part of it. Uh, he makes uh, he makes what he wants very clear to you. He makes what he won't tolerate very clear to you. And if you do too much of the latter and not enough of the former, you're gone. Uh, so you know, there's minimal freelancing. You know, he he's very specific in what he asks you to do, and he very seldom will ask a guy to do what he can't do. And uh, They've uh, always been a, a pleasant surprise. Now, look, we ain't talking about dip buckets here, you know. I mean, <laughs> so, you know, people get getting kind of, I think, maybe a little too giddy and gay about him. I mean, he, he got hammered a couple times again by Oakland in, the, in Mexico City. So, uh, But for what they need, you know, and for what they're asking of him, you know, he's quick. He's a sure tackler. Uh, and he knows what his responsibilities are. And he, he seems to be a guy who's smart enough to understand the entire defensive concept, which a linebacker in New England you have to be able to do.
2: And you know, I go back to uh, we talk about Belichick being a hands-on defensive coach. Go back to that surf ball, that play that uh, uh, Butler made on the interception. Right.
3: Right. I mean, that's a, that's a classic play where they had practices on Wednesday and he didn't do it right. And, and Belichick was in his face, you know, and, and stayed in his face as they ran it a number of more times. Well, when push came to shove uh, in the game... He had already done it wrong, and he had already been sternly reprimanded for it. And he, his technique was proper. He did exactly what he was told to do, nothing more and nothing less. And he won the ball game for him. And, and that's what uh, y- you have to give it to Belichick. Uh, I mean, I'll tell you a really quick story about the, what it's like to play for him. Last week, they're in Colorado Springs uh, training training at altitude, and they know that they're going to have to walk up the stands at halftime in Mexico City at uh, Aztec Stadium. So they practiced it. At Colorado Springs, he made them go up through the stands at the stadium and eat lunch in the press box at the top of the stadium, so they'd be used to it. (laughs) That's
2: him. Okay, let's stay on the defensive theme in this segment as we move into our state your case uh, portion. You've got a patriot and a defender on your front burner, Ron, so let's hear what you got.
3: Rodney Harrison always made an impression, but will he ever make one on Hall of Fame voters? Harrison was one of the most controversial and productive safeties of his time. He was the first player to make 30 interceptions and 30 sacks, and has only been joined by one other player in that category, uh, Ray Lewis of the Ravens. When he retired in 2009 after 15 seasons as strong safety, he had 34 interceptions, 30 and a half sacks, 15 forced fumbles, nine fumble recoveries, two Super Bowl championships, four Super Bowl appearances, two All-Pro selections, and two Pro Bowl selections. He might have had more of the latter had he not so. Uh, had uh, also not had over $200,000 in fines and three separate times been named the NFL's dirtiest player in polls by Sports Illustrated.
2: Yeah.
3: Uh, players as hard-nosed as Rodney Harris did not win popularity contests or Pro Bowl votes. What they win are games and grudging respect. What they win from a coach like Bill Belichick is this. Belichick once said, in the biggest games, in any situation, and on a weekly basis, Rodney's production has was phenomenal. Rodney embodies all the attributes coaches seek and appreciate toughness, competitiveness, leadership, selfishness, hard work, intensity, and professionalism. And coming from Rodney, they are contagious. Harrison has one other pair of awards that clarify him uh, who he was during his career. He was named to the fiftieth anniversary of both the Chargers, anniversary teams, of both the Chargers and the Patriots. What more needs to be said? Well I'll tell you one thing. He comes to the Patriots, first year he's here, they elect him as captain. Captain. On a Super Bowl team. Uh, Rodney Harrison, in nine playoff games with the Patriots, made seven interceptions and had two sacks. That included two against Peyton Manning and another pick against Ben Roethlisberger that he returned 87 yards for a touchdown in the AFC Championship game. Despite missing a quarter of that uh, game, uh, a Super Bowl game against the Eagles, Super Bowl 39, he still had seven tackles, a sack, and two interceptions. The last one coming with 10 seconds to play in a 24-21 to win. Rodney Harrison made plays. He also made enemies. That doesn't mean he doesn't
2: belong in the Hall of Fame. Ron, you said he made the fifth anniversary team of both the Chargers and the Patriots. Yes. Did he play 100 years? <laughs> he did not, but he did enough in the
3: years he was at both places. They said this guy's better than anybody who's played the position. It's. I think it's one of the more phenomenal things I've ever uh, heard about an individual player. Well,
2: so quickly, what, what separates him from, uh, say, Brian Dawkins and John Lynch, current candidates? Well, I, I, I think
3: that you know he had opportunities to make big plays in big, 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 big games, and he, and he did it. Uh, and he did it right through to the end of his career. I know Brian Dawkins is a terrific player. You know, look, if you put a gun to my head and say i got to pick one, uh, I'm going to take Brian Dawkins, frankly. But Rodney Harrison is in
2: that conversation, and that's a pretty high conversation. Okay, stay with us. We're going to visit next with former Cowboys fullback Daryl Moose Johnson about the Cowboys and the Thanksgiving tradition in Dallas. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.
0: You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Hey, I'm looking at the clock, and we're just about out of time.
2: In, the in fact, we have just enough for our two-minute drill. So here we go, Ron. Give me your best answer. The Jacksonville Jaguars lead the NFL in defense, but that bunch needs a nickname. What would you suggest? How about this, Goose?
3: We're not just a bunch of Jags anymore. <laughs>
2: The Patriots have held their last six months to 17 points or less, but still ranked dead last in the NFL in defense. How can that be? If you watched them the first four weeks, you would not have asked that question. <laughs>
3: Philip Rivers, Mickey Rivers, or Doc Rivers? This one's easy, goes man. Mick the Quick, who once said these words to live by: "Ain't no sense worrying about things you got control over, because if you got control, ain't no sense worrying, and ain't no sense worrying about things you don't got control over, because if you don't got control, ain't
2: no sense worrying." <laughs> Sounds like Thoreau to me. <laughs> Rookie running back Kareem Hunt scored six touchdowns in his first three games, but hasn't scored in the seven games since then for the Chiefs. So where has he gone? I don't know, but certainly not on the warpath. The Raiders have the only defense in the NFL still without an interception. Which Hall of Famer would that bother more, Al Davis or Willie Brown? (laughs) Al. Everything bothered Al. Nothing bothered Willie. Jameis Winston is 2-6 as the starting quarterback of the Buccaneers. Ryan Fitzpatrick is 2-0. Should there be a quarterback controversy (laughs) in Tampa? Nobody loves the Amish rifle more than me, Goose Man, but he ain't the future. (laughs) (laughs) The Redskins have fumbled the football a league high 22 times. Should Dan Snyder drain the swamp in his offensive meeting room? No, he should do like Tom Brady, deflate the football. (laughs) (laughs) Detroit quarterback Matthew Stafford has sacked a league runner-up 33 times. Should the Ford family that owns a Lions equip him with airbags? No, they should get rid of some of those Lions and hire some Rhinos. (laughs) Shane Leckler has punted a league guy 57 times for the Houston Texans. When does leg fatigue set in? How can you be fatigued when you have a part-time job? Derek Carr, ML Carr, or Henry Carr? That's easy. Alfa Romeo, a car only one of those guys can afford. (laughs) John Gruden wants back in as a head coach. Where does he wind up?
3: I hope Cleveland, because his eyes will really be bugging out of his head then. <laughs> Who would you replace Gruden on Monday Night Football with? I know Hugh Jackson's going to be available.
2: That's <laughs> the <evening. laughs> Hey, we want to thank Mel Gray and Daryl Moose Johnson for joining us today, Robert Harris Jr. for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, network.com. They're all there, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us at this time and on this station next week. We'll be here. We hope you will be, too.